I'm not gonna let a potentially innocent person like not get their case presented like in a good way to like the lawyers due to like a few group members not replying to my messages. <laughs> From High Tech High, this is the Unbox Learning Podcast. I'm Alec Patton. You just heard the voice of Sophia, a student at High Tech High Chula Vista. Last year, when she was in 11th grade, Sophia advised the California Innocence Project on whether or not to take the case of a prisoner who claimed they were wrongfully convicted. And let me be clear, I'm not describing a simulation where Sophia and her group were acting as if they were reviewing a real case. This was the real deal. Sophia and her group were reviewing an actual application submitted by a person who, as I record these words, is locked up in a prison in Southern California. The project is called Exonerate, and as they say in Hollywood, it was conceived, written, and directed by Mackenzie King, who teaches humanities at High Tech High Chula Vista. I spoke to Mackenzie about how she got the idea for the project, how she built a relationship with the California Innocence Project, and how she helped students do professional-level work with the highest possible stakes. I also got to speak with two students who did the project, Sophia and Gavin. You already heard Sophia's voice, so here's what Gavin sounds like. My name's Gavin. Incidentally, sorry about the audio quality. These interviews were recorded before we upgraded our equipment, and let's just say they demonstrate what a good investment our new mics are. Now, in order to understand anything else, you need to understand what the California Innocence Project does and how the Exonerate Project helps them do it. Here's Mackenzie to explain. So real quickly, the Innocence Project is a nonprofit legal organization that works to exonerate the wrongfully convicted. Exonerate is a student project that helps screen cases for the Innocence Project. They get about 6,000 unique pieces of mail a year, 2,000 of which are like new applications. And so that's a lot to sift through. They're nonprofit. They're based off of mostly attorneys who are willing to do pro bono work, volunteers, interns, stuff like that. So we serve as a very small filter for a segment of those cases. And so the students look through the client's application and then make a determination like there's potential for innocence and these are the things that we would suggest as next steps for you. Or... Nope, <laughs> like either they're guilty or we're not really sure and there's nothing you can do about it. So that's like kind of those like three areas. To make sure you got that, here's how Exonerate works. Mackenzie gets case files from incarcerated people who are asking the California Innocence Project to take their case and argue that they were wrongfully convicted. Students write a memo to the Innocence Project explaining whether or not they recommend that the Innocence Project takes the case and why. They turn that memo into a presentation, and they share their findings and recommendation with the Innocence Project's attorneys. Nobody except the lawyers, the students, and Mackenzie is allowed to be in the room during these presentations because they contain privileged information from the case files. And like Mackenzie said, there are three possible conclusions. The first one is, hey, it looks like they're innocent, and the California Innocence Project should take their case. Second, it looks like they're guilty, so the Innocence Project should not take their case. And then the third, pretty depressing option. This person may well be in prison for a crime they did not commit, but there isn't enough evidence to overturn the conviction, so the Innocence Project won't be able to help them, and they should not take the case. Whenever I hear about a cool project, I wonder where the inspiration came from. And the origin of Exonerate goes back to Mackenzie's first year of teaching. She was hired as an 11th grade biology teacher at High Tech High Chula Vista, and found herself in a position that's familiar to most, if not all, project-based teachers, staring at the year ahead with no idea what project to do. Then, fate led her to a clothing swap. Um, a friend of mine, Liz Perry, who used to work in Point Loma, she would ha host a teacher clothing swap every year before school started. So it was basically like a big pile of cardigans that we all just swapped back and forth because that's like all teacher's own. She and I went out to dinner afterwards and we were talking and it was my first year. I was going to start here 
And I had no idea. I didn't have a project I was excited about. I think I had tuned something that summer about pandemics, which I was like still like interested in, but it just didn't feel like a meaty project. It didn't, there was like almost this feeling I was hoping to have about a project that was just missing. So I was just kind of lamenting to her. And I said like, I would really love to do something related to criminal justice because that's just something I'm really interested in. And then she's like, oh, well, one of my advisees, her mom works for this place called the California Innocence Project. And I was like, that sounds super cool. Can you like connect us? And the next day she just connected us. And I went from there and I knew for me, like one of the big struggles with community partners is one, the trust of students to do anything meaningful, to go beyond this like surface level. Yeah, I'll be a guest speaker or they can play around with this fake thing. And that was what I was hoping to avoid. So I kind of just put my cards on the table and I was like, can we work on actual cases? Can that just be what happens? And to my astonishment, my daily astonishment to this day, she said yes and they continue to say yes to that. So how does Mackenzie get 50 11th graders with no prior legal knowledge beyond what they've seen on TV to a point where the Innocence Project is happy for them to decide the fate of people who are currently in prison? First, she hands out autopsy reports. So the San Diego medical examiner gave me like old autopsy files. They're not graphic. It's like literally just the written report. But I think one of the key skills of a lawyer is that you can be an expert on anything because you never know what your case is going to be. You might suddenly have to be an expert in real estate law or suddenly understand like DNA testimony or arson analysis. You didn't go over any of that in law school and now your whole case is about it and you're the one who has to know it. And so I, I like that aspect of like feeling flexible about it. And since a lot of ours do deal with a lot of scientific testimony or evidence or issues, I start with those. I take away the medical examiner's final determination, and then they have to read their report and try to figure out how the person died. And it's a pretty short document, but it gets them like, okay, at first read, I have no idea what this says. I have to grapple with it. And that helps because when they get to the AOB, which is the appellant's opening brief, those are much longer and far more complex and there's a sense of resiliency that I think you need to build up in that. For the students I talked to, Sophia and Gavin, starting with the autopsy was a huge help. For my autopsy, it was a child who died from SIDS, and um, we kind of had to kind of explore it because the section about the cause of death and what really happened, I was taken out, and uh, we kind of had to uncover that. So going through it, it was just really interesting to start reading it and kind of getting a mindset for that because those are things that a lot of us had to read in our case files. So like reading through mine and taking the different pieces and matching those with causes of death and going through the mechanism of injury and stuff is really helpful. I think it was a really good practice like before we actually got our cases because it was like the first legal document that we read and obviously legal documents have a lot of big words that we're very unfamiliar with. We would look up things related to the case, look up words, and then try to piece together how that person had died. At first, while reading it, it was kind of unsettling because I was reading about a baby who died and I was thinking about the effects that had on the parents and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I definitely wasn't like, yay, I get to read about like a dead person. But like Gavin said, I was like curious about it and it was something I'd never like, read or like learned in school before. So it was definitely like, I wouldn't describe it as fun because like obviously reading about like death isn't like especially fun. But I was like intrigued and motivated to like continue on. And I was looking forward to class every day because I was learning something new. After they present their opinions on the autopsies, the students look at a case file as a whole class. It's the same format as the case file they'll be getting from the Innocence Project, but for a case that the Innocence Project has already made a decision on. When we did it with the class, we were like shared like a Google Drive and it had like four or three documents. And then they were like labeled weird. Like it was labeled like AOB, pre-screen, all these like legal terms that we didn't really know. And so like every document has like different information. Like one is like 
a summary of like the court transcripts. Another one is like what someone in the California Innocence Project like summarized from the court transcripts. So it's just a bunch of like subfiles. And so it was confusing to navigate at first, but like having that one case to practice with, like as a whole class, really made it easier for when we actually got our own case. And then it gets real. I assign them each a client in groups of about three. And then I try to do the same process that I do with the sample case where it's like, okay, today you're just starting off with a questionnaire. Like ignore the 100 page AOB right now. You'll get to that like right now. What's the person's name? Who's the victim? What's the supposed crime? What's their sentence? Like, let's get these like basic details out. The questionnaire Mackenzie's talking about is a short questionnaire that the California Innocence Project requires you to fill out in order to submit a case to them. You can download it on their website. And AOB stands for Appellant's Opening Brief. It's a document that you submit if you're appealing a court decision, which is what you're doing if you are wrongfully convicted of a crime. The questionnaires are all about the same length and level of complexity. The AOBs, not so much. Each case is so wildly different. So there might be one case that has a 100-page AOB and one that has a 20-page one, and then one that has a probation officer's report, and then, you know, like all these random things, and then some that are like, I have eight different letters that are all written in a version of Spanish and English. And, you know, so that's where it gets a little hard to standardize everything. So I use a lot of like workflow techniques to get around some of that. So I have them manage their own groups. We'll get back to workflow techniques in a bit. First, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of Mackenzie's process for assigning cases and forming groups. I do a quick uh, survey of students and I ask them like, is there a topic that you feel like, like, no, I don't want to dig into that. I don't want to look at that. And it's funny because for the most part, I've like had a few students who say like, yes, please don't give me anything involving kids. Please don't do this. And then I always loop back with them to like just kind of double check like that everything's okay. <laughs> but for the most part, students are like, give me the goriest graphic like thing that's on there. And then they get like really disappointed. Like, man, mine's only an armed robbery. You know, like they're like so upset. They're like, they have a shooting or like someone died in theirs, you know. So for the most part, that's where the teenage mind is. And then I also ask if they are comfortable reading in Spanish because they do get a lot of Spanish applicants as well. And then from there, for the most part, what I love to do is I love to put my individual classes into a randomizer and I let that do the initial work. And then I just do fine tuning from there based off of reading level, IEP, group dynamics, um, support systems, things like that. Here's how it felt to Gavin and Sophia to get those case files. My group, we got our case, uh, we got a Google folder, and it was just, it wasn't like three or four um, kind of documents like the class one was. It was like seven or eight. I think it was like, no, it was like nine. So there's a lot of things to look at. There's like letters from um, my client, and there's um, like stuff written like by my client. Like he wrote a big document about uh, of his innocence, like 56 pages. Like looking at that, it was kind of tough. At the beginning, because we kind of put ourselves in like the client's shoes, like, being innocent of a crime, being imprisoned for it for like a, a long period of time, like that's it's pretty hard. Yeah, it was a little bit overwhelming at first. Like my group, uh, we were made up of three people, and usually other teams had like four, so we were like down by one person, and there was multiple documents, so we like kind of delegated who would read what. But then we realized that eventually we would all have to read all the documents because it would be confusing if like only one of us knew what was in one document and it wouldn't be like a good teamwork. And so like for us, like we created like a separate Google document and then we would just like summarize like what like each paragraph from each document. And that really helped us a lot because it is a lot of reading. It was a lot to keep track of with very high stakes. Mackenzie had the groups use the project management software Trello 
because that's what the Innocence Project uses. Which is like a work, a group work like platform. So then they start to manage like who's doing what on there. And then we have a class one. So then I can look at that and see where different people are at in their process. In a turn of events that will not surprise you if you're a project-based teacher, students decided to follow their own path when it came to project management. So in the beginning, we used Trello to like say what everyone else was doing, but it kind of fell apart. Like we didn't really use it after like the first week. Like in theory, it sounds like a really good idea, like a good organizational system. But I feel like we were moving like really fast and like we didn't really have time to like move everyone's name to like the oh, doing or done section. So we kind of just uh, stopped using Trello and just mm-hmm. like depended on each other to know what we were doing. Yeah, it kind of like everything kind of internalized into each group instead of being like a class-wide thing. I asked Sophia and Gavin to rate their group's organization 0 to 10. Honestly, I, I give us like an 8 or a 9 because I also was in a three-person group. So it was just me and two other people. So it was kind of, it was really easy to kind of divvy up the assignments and tasks that we needed to get done kind of hold everybody accountable? Um, for me, I think I'd give us a six or a seven just because, like, it's a group project. This happens, like, every year. Like, someone ends up doing the majority of the work. And so I feel like uh, I could have brought in my other two uh, teammates to, like, pull their, and tell them to, like, pull their weight a little bit more just because it is a lot of reading and a lot of writing, too, since we had to write, like, our own, like, description of the case, our own, like... Uh, claim of innocence for them and like just like write up everything and so I feel like that I could have delegated that I could have like had a conversation with them and said hey like we should all be working on this or we should all read like the whole document so that we can discuss it together. I got the sense that working in a group was actually more challenging than sifting through any of the legal or medical jargon that Sophia and Gavin were faced with. In fact when I asked them about the low point of the project each of them told me a nearly identical story. One night, like, I think it was a few days before, like, our final paper was due for, like, summarizing the event. And, like, I was the only one on the document. And it was, like, 11 o'clock. I wanted to go to sleep. And none of my group members were answering me. And so, like, I just had to finish up and edit up the final thing. For me, what happened was, like, one group member didn't get on the document. And I'm on. I'm working on it. I'm, like, 10. And uh, then I see one of my other group members on the document. Their cursor is just blank. It's been sitting there for like two hours. So <laughs> I guess they just open up the tab, open the document, just kind of forgot to do anything. So you're just typing every time you're checking back. Doesn't change. At that point, I was just like fed up. That I was kind of like doing all the work. Then I realized that it was like a real person that we were helping. Like that client's innocence depends on like us presenting this to the CIP. And so I had to finish it. Was, it was like my responsibility. Like I'm not going to let a potentially innocent person like not get their case presented like in a good way to like the lawyers due to like a few group members not replying to my messages. Notice what Sophia said there, a potentially innocent person. It's easy to lose track of this, but the student's job isn't to abdicate for their client, it's to weigh the evidence and determine whether the Innocence Project should take their case. Their job is to be judges, not lawyers. Now, the students all signed confidentiality agreements before they even reviewed the autopsies, and Sophia and Gavin declined to answer any specific questions about their cases, but they were willing to tell me the conclusions that they reached. Here's what Gavin's group decided after reading their client's entire 56-page letter and going through all the remaining evidence. Well, at the beginning, we saw that we were, we were like, he's innocent, he's innocent, he has to be if he wrote all this. Um, but then we looked into it more and more, and we kind of discovered 
the motive, the details of the crime, all the physical evidence that linked him to the crime. And um, that kind of idea of his innocence really faded away really quickly. Sophia's case was less definitive. Well, he was accused of theft and he was seen with the stolen items. So obviously that sounds guilty, but like the circumstances behind it, I feel like he was innocent because he was just holding it for someone else, but he was still placed in prison for theft. And it was kind of hard to disprove that because if you're seen with a stolen item, then obviously you like stole it. But I did my best to try to find pieces of information from like the AOB document and everything that was said in court to like prove his innocence by saying, oh, actually he was at this place at this time or a witness was never questioned. Like why weren't they questioned? They could be questioned now and they could help prove his innocence. However, once Sophia's group started planning the presentation, they realized that understanding their case had been only half the battle. We knew our case really well. Like, we could talk about it with each other and we would understand. But then we realized that not everyone knows about our case because we would practice, like, in front of other groups. And then after we were done presenting, like, a summary of the case, they would still be confused and they were our classmates. And so we realized that we had to find different ways to present the information in a way that was clear. These presentations take place at the California Western School of Law, where the Innocence Project is based. And these presentations are intense. You get like a rush of adrenaline because like you're presenting and then there's like lawyers and they're looking at you. And then if they they ask you questions and you know the answer because you've been like looking at this case for like almost a month. And so it was like a speed run. Like they would just ask questions and I would just answer. I was kind of like drilled about like a certain bit of information that was on our presentation. And then they just like kept asking me questions. And it was kind of a little intimidating because they sounded like they wanted me to admit that the client was guilty, but I wouldn't. I would like keep providing more information and like backing up my client. So it it's not that like nerve wracking because like you've been practicing for like so long. You've been like looking at the same documents for so long. You're pretty familiar with your case by the time you present to the CIP. I don't know, it was it was kind of fun. Like um, there was that definite rush of adrenaline and you kind of like on autopilot and you're kind of just <laughs> presenting and we did pretty well but uh we did we excelled in the um, that's what we that's what we were told <laughs> but i think we excelled in the um the q a section because we knew a lot about our case and like i was telling sophia earlier about like one of my group members um they really went above and beyond in terms of ballistics the bullet cartridges and stuff used in that and like their theories behind that. And I think that just made our Q&A section that much better when they really went in depth with that because they didn't really, they couldn't really go that in depth inside our presentation because we were at time constraints. So preparing the presentation is just the tip of the iceberg. The serious preparation is for the Q&A. And you never know when you might help the Innocence Project document a pattern of unethical behavior by a detective. This last year we presented and the students were presenting about like what happened. And I think uh, one of the lawyers was like, wait, who was the detective on that case? And the student was like, oh, I think it was. And he starts to say it. And then the Innocence Project staff like finishes it. And they're like, oh, we know that guy. Like, you know, it was like already like, oh, OK, now we're interested in this case because it's this guy. And we know like he has a history with like doing shady stuff. And the California Innocence Project recognizes the level of work that the students put into these presentations. They tell me that high-tech high students are better prepared and better presenters than the law students. And at first I thought they were just like saying that to be kind, but then I've also seen some of the law student presentations and a lot of the people who are in law school, they're not that much older than our students are. And I think that a lot of other schools don't prioritize some of those like soft skills, like presenting and feeling confident in front of a crowd. The fact that we do exhibitions of learning 
our students like are just able to stand up there and like do it. And I think they're just so floored every time they see a 16 year old do that and talk about something as complex as a felony crime. You could be thinking, this sounds like a great experience for kids who are already skilled at reading, writing, and presenting. But what about the kids who really struggle with one or all of those skills? And Mackenzie admits that is really tough. Students with IEPs around reading, that part's really tough just because the AOB is the AOB and I can't read all of them to their full extent and fully scaffold them the way that I would hope to. And I've had a few students who can't remember the person's name, can't understand the basic facts of the crime. And that's been one where I'm like, did they fully get something out of this process? But then it's also really cool because then you see them at exhibition and they still like do their piece at exhibition. I had someone come up to me like in tears. There was a lawyer from the Innocence Project who was saying like, I, it was just like so amazing to see this student who I knew probably struggled with this project stand up there and still like do this. So, I, you know, I, I struggle with it, but at the same time, I also see value in them feeling like professionals, even if it doesn't quite look like what you would hope it would for them. There's another piece of this project that I haven't talked about yet. While they're getting to grips with their cases, students are also reading Just Mercy, a memoir by the lawyer Brian Stevenson, who founded the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama, in order to ensure that everybody can get a fair trial, regardless of their race or how much money they have. Hearing about it, it seemed like a weird fit to me. Like, these kids are doing the hardest reading they've ever done in their lives in order to possibly save an innocent person. How are they going to respond to taking time away from that in order to read a book, no matter how thematically relevant? It sounded to me like a classic case of a project connection that seemed perfect in the teacher's head, but would just feel to students like it was stealing their valuable memo writing time. I could not have been more wrong. We read um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And so we learned about a lot of like, the justice system in, in Alabama and how the death penalty is kind of thrown around there. And so seeing that like racial injustice and then we also like, learned about like wealth inequality and how big of a factor wealth can be when you're on the stand. And not only like wealth, like we learned about like how like black and brown kids are most likely to be incarcerated for like very, very minor offenses. We learned about like cases of police brutality and just like Everything surrounding like the prison system basically we covered. And at the end of the interview, when I asked Sophia and Gavin what advice they had for another teacher who wanted to do this project, here's what they said. Reading Just Mercy, learning about yeah. the injustices done in the prison system, and then like going over like private and like public prisons, just learning about the prison system and the law and how it's not meant to serve marginalized groups. That was really helpful because we had like background knowledge on that. I fully agree with her. Like um, reading Just Mercy, like really allowed, I think, everybody to care about their client more, which I think is a very key piece, because if you don't care about your client, you're not really going to like work hard to prove his innocence or not. Hearing this from Sophia and Gavin made me rethink my own ideas about project design. In the projects I teach, I've tended to focus on the most concrete elements. That is, what students need to do to make a high-quality product, whether that product is a painting, a play, a robot, or a presentation to lawyers. But when you focus too narrowly on the quality of the product, you can lose track of what makes that product important in the first place. For example, the power of the Exonerate Project lies in helping real people who are in prison right now. But those people only became real to the students when they read Brian Stevenson's book as a class. And that's my own biggest takeaway from making this podcast. Sometimes, in a project, you need to step away from the work in order to understand why the work matters. If you're feeling inspired to do a version of this project yourself, I have good news. There may well be an organization like the California Innocence Project near you. To find out, visit the Innocence Network at www.innocencenetwork.org, then get in touch and see if the organization would be interested in working with you. If more teachers are doing projects like Exonerate, it'll be good for kids, it'll be good for the Innocence Network, and it will genuinely bring America closer to fulfilling its promise of liberty and justice for all. 
that would be a pretty good result for all of us. The Unboxed Learning Podcast was written and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel, with additional music by Brent Spurnack. Thanks for listening.